Right. Hello. Hello. Wow. There's Isabel Sandoval. Hello. <laughs> Welcome. Talking to us. That's good. Um, well, this is Sarah. You can yes. see. She's like my sort of right hand so, woman. Um, yeah, sure. So it's going to be quite informal. Mm-hmm. Just have a little little chit chat. Um, we both have some questions, but I'll just talk about the Fen Filmmakers Festival. Fair. So I don't know if you're aware of it or you were not aware of it until I um, tagged you. I'm not sure. Have you heard of it before? Um, I don't believe so. <laughs> That's okay. So what I did is um, a few years ago, there's a site called Directed by Women, which a lady called Barbara founded. And every September she has like a massive, it's almost like a viewing party. She's mm-hmm. been doing that for, I think, about seven years. And I, I sort of went on the coattails of that and thought, oh. and I was helping her out a bit and I was doing some stuff on my website, Filmotomy, and then I just thought, why not do like some kind of online festival where I, I didn't have the means to set up a proper festival, but everything's available online and then sort of focus on short films as well and then just showcase some feature films. So that's always really fun, as Sarah will tell you choosing which feature films we're going to select and where to stream and so and yours this year was because yours is relatively new we wanted some some quite new films so yeah we try to have a few like that have recently come out so we're still right off the discussion like I think there's some that I reviewed last year that are in this selection already yeah and we're both fans uh, of the film um I think you've heard me a bit yeah (laughs) Uh, lingua franca obviously uh, I watched it again today so that's my second my second time I've got some basic questions about it I'm sure you've answered a lot of these before so I'm tra- I tried to think of stuff that was a little bit different and so how much of the themes like obviously sexual identity immigration how much did that form this film because it's also about adult relationships you know like um, caring for the elderly the, for the ill finding attraction in another person family there's some family dynamics between at the beginning especially what what was the sort of the core of the story or were they all meant to be you know sort of you know what's the word um like an authentic part of the story i think you know part of me wanted to work with a story about a filipina immigrant that's considered quite generic and even a bit of a trope. Um, mm. And through that, kind of tell that story with as much specificity and honesty um, and a true subjectivity from her perspective that I've never seen done before. And so that was how I came up with the basic premise of Lingua Franca, but initially it was more of a straightforward romantic drama where, you know, this trans, Filipino trans immigrant becomes romantically involved with someone who wasn't initially aware that she's trans. Um, but then I was right, as I was writing it, that's when Trump got elected and like a lot of minorities that were, you know, living in the U.S. at that time, I felt like I plunged into a kind of, you know, existential despair about what's going to happen to me and 
people like me, um, I felt a lot of anxiety and paranoia and uncertainty. And so what happened was that I distilled my emotional state at that time into what becomes the prevalent mood and tone of Lingo Franca and that it's a, a drama with romantic elements that's also tinged with an ease and anxiety. Um, but it's ultimately a story, I wanted it to be a story not about the victimization or you know, the, the misery of this woman, but about her resilience and her determination to keep going um, despite the uncertainty of the future that she's confronted with. Because mm. you get the, the male point of view as well, it's quite strong in this, and that's, I think that's really good. You didn't just want to just pick one thing and then shove it down the audience's throat, whatever that might be. This was like, you saw his, more, probably more so than the, the female character, you saw his kind of emotional anguish, you know, as he realised he liked it, and then he realised the, the dilemmas that came with it and trying to sort of not screw it up, I suppose, in a way, which is, we can relate to. Yeah, and I think that also, you know, I, my philosophy when it comes to humanity and that translates to how I write characters is, is I don't um, write characters that are, that are cardboard, you know, like heroes or villains. People are a lot more complex and layered and inscrutable than that. And I think... Ultimately, I'd like to believe that people want to be good or innately good, but they can be sometimes weak. Um, and that's what makes Lingua Franca, I think, humane and compassionate um, in that sense. And also, it's these imperfections and these flaws and this capacity and willingness to become a better person, it's what gives the film, I think, the very similitude of real life um, as we experience it. Um, and it doesn't you know, trade in blacks and whites when it comes to morality, but in the gray areas. Yeah, well, so I Go for it. <laughs> yeah, oh, um, so I've seen your earlier films, and I've noticed the way you show violence has changed. Um, it's like a film or like apparition where it's very, very direct and on screen. And it's changed with like Lingua Franca, where a lot of the um, precursor like discussion around the film before its premiere, before its release, was talking all like warning um, about it was going to be people thought it would be some sort of sob story, and the film actually directly sets up and avoids this violence. What was your process in avoiding this in later films? I think part of it is having transitioned myself and now I'm really, you know, not as an artist and as an individual, I'm really seeing the world from a woman's eyes and from a woman's perspective. And I feel like, you know, having not gone to film school, my film school was really exposing myself to the works of, you know, tours and masters. And so I feel like in my first two films, I was still trying to find my voice in the process of that. Um, I was mostly, I think, not necessarily just imitating, but doing nods to, you know, the masters whose work I liked. And I was also at that same time kind of sorting through and working through what is my philosophy as a filmmaker and as an artist. Mm. And 
lingua franca represents to me a kind of maturation of my work as a filmmaker, not just aesthetically, but also in terms of the ideological and political um, and philosophical um, grounding of, of the work. And that I don't you know, want to reinforce and wallow, wallow in tropes about, you know, that subject women to violence, especially physical violence. But when I do chronicle violence in the lives of women, I try to focus on the more insidious, invisible mm -hmm. expressions of this violence. And in this case, it's psychological um, in Wafranca. One thing I really liked, you mentioned about the sort of well, the pacing, the pacing of it, I was really impressed with because it kind of it kind of plodded on like life does. And, and, and I don't mean that in a bad way, I mean that in a really good way. Like it was constructed just like like everyday life. And was that something that was just done by accident, like during editing, like realized when you were shooting, perhaps? Or was it something in the writing where you wanted that composed everyday feel to it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in the very first draft of Lingua Franca, like the first, the opening passages and sequence was essentially a more direct nod to Jean Dilbert. Mm -hmm. Like it was more extreme in that sense. Like I just wanted a woman going through her morning ritual, you know, waking up. Even some of the scenes, you know, like the final, in the final cut, the scenes are especially in the first 10 minutes of her just waking up and going through her chores and um, looking after Olga, they were a lot longer, you know, and really immerses you in that environment and in that milieu of just observing her. It's more naturalistic in that sense. It's one of a, one of a mention, um, the blended dialogue and visuals quite a lot. So there'll be a conversation and you'll just cut to New York. Famous sort of shots we see in, um, news from home, which Sarah, which Sarah will be familiar with. Um, so it's like, it's, it's Chantal Ackerman, obviously, is an inspiration. What else? Was that intentional? What, who else Who else directly influences the way you work? Um, it's interesting because with Lingua Franca, I, this is the first film where I was like, I'm going to do this movie it's held, you know, in my own language, in my own aesthetic sensibility. Mm -hmm. But because during my formative years as an artist, um, you know, I was exposed to a lot of work by Cassie Betty's, um, Wong Kar Wai, Fassbinder, and of course, Chantal Ackerman. You know, these influences just subconsciously emerged in the process of making the film, whether in production, you know, of course, you know, the choice to you know, shoot things a certain way, but also in editing, you know, because I cut the film myself. It's actually, it was actually in post that I decided to do that news from home montage in the beginning. Um, like when you make the um, city of New York almost a character when you show it that much, um, are you intending it as a representation of um, America and that situation as a whole or as the city? Um, you know, having lived in New York for 15 years, I, in movies that I've seen it, there's either, you know, the very mainstream movie vision of New York of, 
the Empire State Building and skyscrapers, you know, essentially mm-hmm. like a tourist trap vision, vision of New York, or there's, you know, more recognizable neighborhoods like, you know, Williamsburg, um, mm-hmm. and even Adam's Girls, or Bed-Stuy of Spike Lee's, you know, cinema. So I wanted to show, I think, a New York that was otherwise considered, you know, hidden or invisible. Mm-hmm. And especially in outer boroughs like Brooklyn and Queens, what's very interesting is that each neighborhood, especially if there's a specific ethnic group in the 1960s, there's a feeling of that it's, this neighborhood is so self-contained um, and stuck in a very specific time that I wanted to capture um, on film. Yeah. And yeah, just to show a New York that feels idiosyncratic and personal um, to my to my work. Yeah, I like that. Um, so you made a you've recently made a short film, I think Sarah's got a couple of questions that Shangri-La. How, how, how did that come about exactly? Um, Shangri-La was interesting because, you know, I was approached by Mew Mew in mid-November. Um, it was an incredible honor to be approached because they worked with, for that Women's Tale series, they worked with Lies of Agnes Varga, Miranda July, um, Lynn, Lynn Ramsey, um, and Mati Diopret before me, but then they said, okay, so we have just a little over two months to finish this thing. But I, I like to think I work best actually under pressure, under time pressure. And I've never done a proper short before. I had a short film called Senorita, but I used that, I shot that mostly as a kind of proof of concept for the feature film. With that, I, came up with a premise for Shangri-La because I was also working on and developing a feature film that's an interracial romance between a Filipino, in the, in the feature is a Filipino immigrant man and a woman during the Great Depression. Um, yeah, I kind of just let my imagination and my intuition guide me in the making of Shangri-La. Because um, I've seen a few of these shorts and a lot of them, they'll make like the fashion on the, the focal point, especially the Agnes Varda one, which is mostly just about a flying dress. Um, this is one of the few that I've seen from it where you're working it into the film and essentially using this to be like, okay, they're telling me to make a film. I just have to have it in there. I've noticed that a lot of these are centering it around. That. Yeah. Instead, you were like, yeah, I'm just going to make what I want. <laughs> and that's going to look nice. For the longest time, I've had an ambivalent relationship with fashion. I don't consider myself a fashionista <laughs> in any way. But, um, and that's why, even though there might be set pieces in Shangri-La that are kind of very, you know, um, more um, fashion-y, so to speak, uh, it comes mm-hmm. back to a tone that is more poignant and, and melancholy. Um, um. Sarah, do you have any questions about the uh, upcoming project? Uh, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I've um, I read a brief synopsis that was on Festival Scope when I was browsing that. Yeah. yeah. Tropical Gothic. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, 
Tropical Gothic, you know, is my fourth feature and my most ambitious one. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because at this point, I've lived in the U.S. for 16 years. And I thought with Nigofanka, I've finally gotten over setting stories in the Philippines, which is my, mm-hmm. my home country. But I've noticed now that the theme that I am drawn to or gravitate to over my films, um, especially with Rita and, you know, Lingo Franca, is I, I'm drawn to stories about women with secrets and also women who are disempowered and disadvantaged in a certain way who are forced to confront um, very personal choices and decisions in a fraught and very particular socio-political setting and milieu. And the other go-to theme that I have is women who are trying to navigate two different worlds, um, whether you know psychologically or geographically. And Tropical Gothic, which is set in the 16th century in the Philippines very early on during the Spanish regime, and it's fundamentally, you know, uh, an allegory about colonialism and imperialism. When the Spaniards arrived in the Philippines, they dispossessed the natives of their property and farmland. They seized all of them and took over. And so the story is about a native Filipino priestess who pretends to be possessed by the spirit of her Spanish master's dead bride in order to psychologically manipulate him to give her back her property and farmland. And it's influenced to a certain degree. I I feel like I came up with a very different, you know, it's a totally different story from this film, but I came up with a story for Tropical Gothic after having seen Vertigo for the first time, which I think is the most, you know, male (laughs) gazing. Of, of the films that I've ever seen. And, you know, this is not a knock against Vertigo, but I wanted to turn that, you know, male gaze on itself. And it's about this woman essentially gazing at this man, gazing on a fantasy or fictional version of her. The interesting thing of Vertigo and a few other films is that they'll use that male gaze not essentially in that like traditional like leering panning up someone's body way but instead they're using it because they're um, discussing that man's desire and his control and there's I I almost feel like there's a difference between using that to show power and just using that to bring in an audience. And in this case like also in terms of themes I'm it's been said, you know, and that my films are political, but not necessarily, or not only because they're set in very defined, you know, socio-political, you know, milieus, but also because I explore, you know, power dynamics in in my films. That's very evident in Senorita, where it's her art is essentially about kind of regaining a degree of power that she's losing to like her 
you know, this corrupt town mayor and also her, her client in the city. And with Olivia and Lugofranca, that power translates to her personal agency and freedom to decide, you know, the course of her own life. And in Tropical Gothic, again, that translates to this woman in a very um, concrete way, economic, you know, and agrarian power um, of getting back the property that belongs to her. And she does that by kind of exerting a certain psychological and emotional power and control over her colonizer. So it's a very layered, um, <laughs> layered film. Well, I was watching, um, watching the film again today, the, the sort of two thirds in, you've got the Trump, President Trump, was, is that little bit almost knocks, it's almost not fiction anymore. Uh, uh, and that I said to I said, oh, there's the bad guy. I mean, obviously, the, the immigration, but he was classed, I suppose, if, if you've got a bad guy, he's the one. Oh, God, he's um, yeah, it's so interesting because now that, you know, his administration is over, I feel like, mm. I just feel like a, a pretty chilling time capsule of what it was like um, living in that administration. Of course, I'm not saying that, you know, the problems are all over. They continue, you know, to happen to minorities and especially undocumented immigrants. But yeah, I wanted to chronicle what it was like for, you know, people like me to have lived under the Trump administration. Um. And one more question I want to ask, and obviously if Sarah's got anything else, because time is a factor. Um, you've probably answered this a million times, but how do you identify as a filmmaker? Is it just that you want to be somebody who makes films? And how, how important are the tags of, you know, woman of colour, woman, outright, trans woman? What are those, of those do you consider to be most important and, and to influence others, perhaps? Um, yeah, I, I think... I would want to be known as a filmmaker. And that being said, you know, my very singular and unique sensibility and perspective as both, you know, as a woman, a trans woman of color, an immigrant Filipino, a lapsed Catholic, what <laughs> have you, they're always gonna emerge in my work, you know, as long as I work on projects where I exert complete creative control and autonomy, everything about my identity and history and psyche is gonna emerge in the work and it's gonna be apparent. Um, you do do everything. <laughs> I mean, you produce, write, edit. I mean, are you, gonna, are you gonna get an editor or are you just gonna do everything? Act, obviously you're the you act as well. <laughs> and, you know, I. I'm trying to kind of, now that I'm starting to get my foot in the door in Hollywood, I'm now represented by CAA as a writer, director. Mm. I also want to continue to carve out um, a path where aside from working on studio projects, I'm still, I still pursue independent, really a tour driven personal work. Um, and that could be where I, continue to wear multiple creative hats. And I want to reserve, you know, acting, you know, my acting for films that truly feel deeply personal to me. And that said, I 
definitely want to act in tropical Gothic as well. Right. Sarah, do you have any more questions? Um, yes. Uh, lately, you've been talking, you did the, um, you wrote something up for Letterboxd recently about this, but about your idea of like a central cinema canon. Um, and you've talked a lot about like films like In the Mood for Love, um, Vertigo. I can't remember, but I feel like In the Realm of the Senses was on this at one point. Um, yeah. And you, uh, what do you see as like the future of this like realm of uh, central or erotic cinema? Um. I think based on my theory and philosophy of, you know, portraying and depicting desire in film, I think it's really women and queer filmmakers um, that are going to, I think, innovate um, the portrayal of this desire because, you know, for the last over 100 years, really, um, when the men took over Hollywood, it's really a male gazy um, version of the desire that we've seen portrayed. Um, but now I think, and like with last year, I think two of the most um, exciting and interesting works that portray this desire were by um, you know, Miranda July with Kajolinier, Kajolinier, um, Josephine Decker with, with Shirley that the most um, formally and thematically and dramatically uh, exciting works about desire and sensuality are going to be coming from queer and women filmmakers. If they're able to make these works, you know, independently and with not a lot of pseudo interpreters, just because desire, you know, it comes to like, women um, and queer artists, it's not something that we have taken for granted. Um, and it's coming from a place of, in a way, you know, repression. Mm -hmm. And so the expression and manifestation and articulation of that creatively, I think, just something interesting is happening in the process. And that becomes apparent in the final output that we see on the screen, you know, just for the examples of what I mentioned, Kajolinier and Shirley. And I'd like to think to a certain degree in Lingua Franca, so. Because the sensu sensuality is so watchable because it's never completely consummated. Like it, you never like max out, you never get what you're led up to. And I think in Lingua Franca, what I'm, not what I'm noticing as, um, like even though it's a romance that is fulfilled in times, so she's always hiding parts of herself. And so that entire, like all-consuming romance is never shown and that's why it's so like we want to keep watching that exactly it's kind of like you know a sense i compare it to the idea behind you know arousal arousal and climax you know <laughs> in the sexual encounter or like when you have you know you know there's a hookup and you know it was just sex once the once there's an orgasm it's over like there's no emotional connection in any way and you can just go on and continue to live your own life. But if that's kind of thwarted or as you mentioned, not consummated, that experience and that person continues to haunt you and, you know, linger in you um, in a certain way. And it's the same way with cinema or art, I feel, when you're left... Um, 
hanging in a certain way. You know, there's a certain, the suspense and tension is unresolved. It keeps you coming back for more. Um, like the recent Twitter conversation about a lot of the films from Khan, like the films that people are talking about as part of, um, people are calling it like horny con, uh, here. And uh, <laughs> it's all the films they're mentioning are ones where things don't like, things either don't end well, someone leaves, or there's a brutal murder and cars involved. It's never the films where things end well or, th or things fulfill themselves to their natural ending because people don't like the like natural co conclusion to it because you don't, there's nothing that leaves you wanting more there. Um, yeah, um, yeah, I just feel like, um, and it's also the same way I keep going back to In the Mood for Love because I think it's like the best example of that kind of contained energy. Um, that it's unresolved in a way that's just so lush and exquisite um, and whets your appetite, you know, both uh, in terms of as an aesthete, an essentialist, and as a person. And that's the kind of films that I hope, you know, I, I make and continue to make. And definitely that's my approach for sure with tropical gothic and that i'm going to make the most erotic scene in in cinema without the characters even kissing you know let alone having sex with each other <laughs> and i'm really glad you, you you know i found the time to speak to us you know because sometimes it's a real struggle to, to, to let, have anyone speak to you so it was great and i'm really glad we did i'm sure sarah feels the same yeah so, Thanks, Thanks, Sarah.